Hello, my name is Thomas. I'm excited to be with you here today to share in God's word together. Um, for those of you newer to the life of the church, I'm the young adult pastor here at the church, and I also lead worship. You may recognize me from here, where I often lead worship and play guitar, and those are both my honors and privileges. I love to be a pastor here at the church for you, and I love getting to lead you in worship. Great to be here with you on this Sunday morning. But for those of you who are newer and you may not know me, you may not know that I'm originally from Ireland. I'm originally from the island of Ireland, the country of Northern Ireland. I was born in the city of Dungannon, which is on the red dot up there in the screen, in the county of Tyrone, in the province of Ulster. And all of my extended family are still overseas. My immediate family, my mom and my dad and my younger brother of two years, are the only ones who came to the United States. And we're still going through the immigration process. But in January 2019, I became a permanent resident of the United States and received the highly sought after green card. I have to keep <laughs> this card with me at all times in order. Oh, shoot, that's the wrong one. Okay. I have to keep this card with me at all times in order to live here in the United States. This, this card is very important to me. I wouldn't trade it for very many cards. I would trade it for a Ricky Mantle rookie card, but like, or a Charizard first edition holographic, yeah, right? But most things I wouldn't trade this card for. Uh, it's very valuable to me. It allows me to live here, and I hope to become a full-on U.S. citizen one day. I am working on that currently. I can apply for full citizenship in about a year and a half, so be praying for me. We're working through it. It's been a long process, but we're getting there. However, I know what most of you are still thinking, but where's your accent, Right? Why? I can tell from the disappointment. You have no idea how many times I've been asked that question. Where's your accent, though? Or how many times I've been introduced as the Irish friend, only to see this new acquaintance go from being thoroughly excited to completely disappointed or confused? Well, I have Irish words slip out from time to time, kind of like Pastor Wayne has Australian words slip out from time to time. He grew up in Australia. But uh, for the most part, I've been living here most of my life, so I sound like a good middle Western dude, like all of you. So I, and again, I love getting to live here. I've lived in a few countries, um, but I'm glad to live in the United States. I look forward to becoming a full-on U.S. citizen and, uh, and get all of the rights, including like the right to vote. So currently, I'm not allowed to vote, but I can pay taxes, <laughs> right? So I can not vote, but I can still pay for it. And it's just like... No, I'm kidding. But it is strange to be living in a country where you're not a citizen. I've been here so long, as you can tell, that I actually think I feel American, even though I'm not completely sure what that means. Um, but I don't have the same rights as many of you. There are times where I go into a government building and I have to fill out legal paperwork. And because I can't check that box that says American citizen, things become instantly complicated, especially because they look at me and they hear me and they think, you should be American. Why are you not American? I'm like, I'm trying. But sometimes even just showing my birth certificate is problematic. Um, when I was 16 years old, I went to the DMV to get my license. And I was really concerned that they weren't going to take my birth certificate. It looks different than everybody else's, especially in the small town where I grew up. And so to this day, I actually cannot drive in the United States. I do it illegally. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Just kidding. They let foreigners drive all the time. 
But it is unnerving to have someone look at your birth certificate like some kind of like piece of monopoly money or something. But it's also unnerving to be sitting in a U.S. embassy in a cold waiting room wondering if they're going to allow you back into the country. My family was actually not allowed back into the U.S. once. We once had a lawyer who gave us bad advice, fired that guy, and immigration law changed without us knowing, and we were banned from the United States for 10 years. We fought with lawyers for a year and a half living overseas in order to get back here. So our home, we couldn't get back for a year and a half. I couldn't go back to school for a year and a half. So uh, I was homeschooled for a while, got to know my extended family really well. Um, and my dad's business lay dormant for a year and a half as well. So we almost lost everything that we immigrated here and worked for. But thankfully, things worked out in the long run. However, if we would have been American citizens with American passports, we could have just flashed those passports and came home and not had everything laid dormant for a year and a half. But we haven't been offered that privilege quite yet, but we're looking forward to it. My brother and I should be U.S. citizens within the next couple of years. I should get it right before him. Now, not being a U.S. citizen and not sounding Irish has actually caused me to think and reflect really deeply on my sense of identity citizenship and belonging. And I'm sure you can identify with this in some way too, trying to make sense of where you belong. Struggling with belonging can stir up for various reasons. It can be socioeconomic, meaning maybe you live in a place and you're not as wealthy as the people around you. It can be racially based. Maybe you live in a neighborhood where you're the minority. In your family, maybe you're the black sheep. Among your own blood relatives, you're like, I don't even fit in here. Could be your job. You're at a job or a career where the work culture just goes against everything that's in you. Or maybe you're struggling with this sense of belonging and you don't know why. That is very difficult when you can't identify it. I've been there. Or maybe you're an immigrant in a foreign land, like me. And there's actually other immigrants at our church, more than you might know. Since I'm not a US citizen, and I don't fit in my home country any longer, I've really questioned where I belong. It was in this struggle where God taught me some deep truths about my identity and my primary citizenship, which is not Irish, it's not Northern Irish, it's not being an immigrant, it's not being American, it's not even about my potential future in becoming American, which I look forward to. Rather, my primary citizenship is in heaven. And this is true for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. So we're going to explore this idea of heavenly citizenship together today. We are currently in a series called Including the Kitchen Sink. So when the pastors got together to talk about this next series, we had all these different ideas. And Wayne was like, yeah, just share what you want to share. And we realized that they weren't all connecting very well. And it reminded us of that old saying, including the kitchen sink, meaning when you were going on a trip and you were overpacking, you would stuff all of these things into your duffel bag, overpack everything imaginable, including the kitchen sink. So, and I'm going to share for you a topic from that bag today that we made. Pastor Wayne will be back next week. Excited to have him at the pulpit again. But this week, I'm going to unpack for us this is a topic that has had my attention for a long time, which is, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Let's see what the Bible has to say about our citizenship in heaven. 
by turning to Philippians 3, verse 18. Starting in the middle of verse 18. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. It was from these verses that I learned some very important lessons. For Christians, our primary sense of belonging has to be Christ. It has to be Jesus. Our primary allegiance has to be the kingdom of God. And our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our primary citizenship is in heaven regardless of our earthly nationalities. And I'm not saying don't worry about this world, just think about your future home in heaven. That's not helpful for life here and now. I'm not saying we should be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. However, I am saying the way that we think about our heavenly citizenship should inform our earthly identities. For Christians, we should use our unique earthly identities, even our citizenship, to further the heavenly kingdom. A great example of this is the Apostle Paul, who just penned the words, we read words that he wrote down in Philippians 3. He used his earthly citizenship very intentionally to further the kingdom of heaven. But before we learn from Paul's example, we need some details from his life so we understand the man. Before becoming a Christian 2,000 years ago, Paul was a devout Jew, and he was an expert in Roman law, and he was an upstanding Jewish citizen. Now, Jewish citizenship in the ancient world works differently than our citizenship. Their citizenship was solely based on cultural and religious practices that they were born into. But Paul kept all these things religiously, And he even violently opposed people who disagreed with his worldview. Paul traveled from city to city finding Christians, those who he disagreed with, imprisoning them, and encouraging their executions. Paul hated Christians and their belief in Jesus as God. And he wanted to end the movement of Jesus. However, some of you know, this all changed when Paul had a supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus. Jesus has already died and rose from the dead, gone back into heaven, and Paul is on his journey. He's going to a new city. He's going to take care of some Christians. He's going to lay a smack down. And then Jesus shows up on the road in a flash of light and says, why are you persecuting me? Meaning, why do you hurt and imprison the people whom I love and died for. And it's through this supernatural encounter that Paul realizes that he was wrong about Jesus, he's wrong about Christians, Jesus is God in the flesh, and Paul changes teams. He converts. He goes from being a persecutor of Christians to a Christian missionary, a church planter, meaning he starts churches, and a defender of Jesus. Now Paul's travels have changed. He goes all over Judea and the ancient Roman world telling everyone, Jews and non-Jews alike, follow Jesus. He switched teams. But this doesn't mean just because Paul became a Christian that he stopped being Jewish. 
Rather, he used his Jewish citizenship and education trying to convince other Jews to follow Jesus as well. He convinced some Jews, but other Jews hated Paul and considered him a traitor. And because of that, it put him in danger often. The same violence that he put out is now reflected back on him. Let's turn in our Bibles and Bible apps to Acts 21. Acts 21, where we will learn about the kinds of trouble Paul got himself into. If you're using a pew Bible, you can turn to page 1,694. Here we find Paul on a visit to Jerusalem, the center of all Jewish life, culture, and religion. There are Christian Jews in the city, so they've already accepted Jesus, and they're so excited to hear about Paul and to hear Paul come share with them how he's reached more people from Jesus for, for Jesus. And then the regular Jews in the city, those who have not accepted Jesus, are furious that he has returned, and they start a literal riot and try to kill him. Let's start in verse 30 of chapter 21. The whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, news reached the Roman commander, the commander of the Roman troops, that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some of the officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd, When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. You see, at this time, the province of Judea and the city of Jerusalem are under Roman occupation, and the Roman military has been put in place to keep peace and order. Let's continue on in verse 33. The commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him. Things get so out of hand that the Roman commander asks Paul if he's part of a terrorist organization. In modern day terms, it's like the Roman commander is saying, who are you? What have you done? I can't hear you. What have you done? Are you part of ISIS or something? That's how bad it is. The city's in an uproar. Paul then asks for permission to speak to the very crowd that just tried to kill him. With the commander's assistance and his group of soldiers defending Paul, Paul is finally able to get a word in. Verse 40. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, that's their home language, that's their local language, brothers and fathers, he uses family terms, Listen to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Paul speaks to his local fellow Jews on their terms and their language in their shared heritage. From there, Paul is able to share his background and his testimony. He shared how he was born to a Jewish family. He went to a great Jewish school. 
He became an expert in the Jewish law. He reminds them, hey, remember, I used to persecute those people we disagreed with, the Christians. And at this point, many of the Jews are thinking, maybe we have this guy wrong. He seems to be one of us. Maybe we should keep listening. Paul even goes on to share about his supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus. Keep in mind, Jesus was also Jewish, and they're willing to tolerate him. They didn't accept Jesus as their leader, but they listened to him about Jesus. So they're still listening, they're tolerating Paul, until Paul says the following thing. In chapter 22, verse 21, Paul's talking about how God talked to him. The Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That means to non-Jewish people. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this, Gentiles, non-Jews. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. The uproar continues. The crowd is triggered. As soon as he mentioned God accepting the Gentiles, they lose their minds and they start yelling, kill Paul, he doesn't deserve to live. I find it interesting, Paul was able to mention Jesus, whom these particular Jews rejected, but as soon as they hear God now accepts non-Jews, Gentiles, they freak out. See, the Jews rejected the Gentiles because they viewed them as corrupt, ignorant of the things of God, pagan, and polytheistic, meaning they rejected the Gentiles because they worshiped many false gods rather than focusing and worshiping only to the one true God and keeping his laws and standards. Let's keep going in our story here. Verse 23. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks, and he directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why these people were shouting at him like this. This poor Roman commander still has no idea what's going on. He just knows that there's this Jewish uproar, and this one guy's causing all the problem, and he can't figure anything out. Verse 25, this is a very important verse. As the Romans stretched Paul out to flog him, he said to the centurion standing there, a centurion is a Roman soldier, he says to the soldier, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? In this moment, Paul reveals that he is also a a Roman citizen, which affords him some rights including protection and due process, which he's not getting. See, being an ancient Roman citizen is not exactly like our modern-day citizenship, but it wasn't religiously based like the Jewish citizenship. Roman citizenship at this time was focused on giving certain individuals protection and rights when they swore allegiance to the state. However, not everyone in the Roman Empire was afforded Roman citizenship. It was a privilege. And up until this point, The commander thinks he's just dealing with some Jewish citizen. He has no idea that Paul has the same rights as he does. Verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you really a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, Paul answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen. Paul replied, those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. They did not want to get in trouble with their supervisors. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. 
But Paul is being very intentional here. Paul is using his citizenship to stop an unlawful abuse of the state, sure. But God has so much more in mind. God is going to use this moment to trigger a series of events that will lead to Paul sharing the gospel with the Roman emperor and dictator known as the Caesar, who is arguably the most powerful human being on the earth at this time. So at first glance, it just looks like Paul is trying to use his citizenship to get out of trouble and not get hurt. However, from earlier in the book of Acts, we know that Paul doesn't always use his citizenship privileges in this way for his own benefit. There's another time earlier in the book where Paul is beaten and thrown into jail for performing a miracle in Jesus' name. He shares his faith. He goes to jail. He gets beaten for it. And at that time, Paul knew his citizenship rights. So why on earth would he allow himself to go to jail at a different time? Well, God used it. Paul is thrown in jail at this earlier time, and he is able to share the gospel with the jailer who is guarding him. And this jailer and his whole entire Gentile non-Jewish family become Christians. They become some of the very first non-Jewish Christians and Paul is willing to take some beating and suffering to make sure that happens. It's the only way the jailer is going to know Jesus. So let's go back to Acts chapter 23, where Paul is using his citizenship this time, for some reason, to avoid a beating. The reason? God has a plan. And it's funny because Paul doesn't know all the details yet, but God's going to let him know. While spending the night in the barracks, God reveals his full plan to Paul. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. You've spoken to the Jewish leaders. I'm going to send you to the Roman leader. So meanwhile, outside the barracks, the Jews are still losing their minds. And they actually plan an assassination attempt on Paul's life. He has that happen a lot of times, actually. However, the commander, the Roman commander protecting him, finds out about it, and he gathers, catch this, 470 bodyguards, soldiers, some of them on horseback, to secretly sneak and deliver Paul with protection out of the city in the middle of the night to take him from the commander's post to the court of the governor. He's sending Paul to his superior because he doesn't know what to do. But the governor has no idea what to do with Paul, too. He's like, this guy hasn't committed any of our crimes. And he asks Paul, he's like, Paul, could you just go back to the Jewish courts and deal with your own people? But Paul's like, absolutely not. He knows, first of all, that'll get him killed. And he knows, second off, that God has a plan. So rather, Paul says this, I appeal to Caesar. By proclaiming this phrase, Paul is demanding to meet with the Roman emperor and dictator. Paul is being accused without evidence in a governor's court. So as a Roman citizen, Paul can demand to be moved up to the supreme court of the land into the very presence of the dictator himself. And we can see this scene play out in this painting. The artist depicts Paul with both hands raised in shackled chains, boldly proclaiming Jesus' name and making his defense in the courtroom. 
the governor sits in his red robe, listening intently, but with a perplexed look on his face. The barrister, or the lawyer, on the left-hand side in white, also perplexed, because this man is standing trial for no crime. I love this one. The Roman soldier at the far right of the painting trembles in the darkness. And if you look closely in the painting, you see this look of fear in his face because he has seen firsthand how dangerous this man can be without doing anything. And these court officials have no idea. And here Paul is saying, this is my citizenship. I know my rights. Let's take this to the Supreme Court. I appeal to Caesar. And Paul remembers God's plan back in verse 11. Take her courage, Paul, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And this is the way that God will provide Paul the opportunity to share the gospel with Caesar, arguably the most powerful person on the earth at this time. Paul is taking a crazy risk at Jesus' request. This would be like if you had the opportunity to go to North Korea and share the gospel with Kim Jong-un himself, knowing very well it could get you killed, but Jesus has asked you to do it, would you do it? Would you do it for the sake of the gospel, to potentially win over a dictator, to see people delivered from oppression? Would you take that kind of risk for Jesus, even if it were to kill you? Paul's willing, and Paul just, just that. The seeds sown by Paul would not only change Rome, but it would change the world as we know it, like us, that we know it today. It takes some time because the church in Rome became a powerhouse for the kingdom of God, not only in the first century, but for the following 2,000 years and even until today. You are a Christian today because Paul cried out, I appeal to Caesar. God used this moment to bring the gospel to the rest of the world, namely the... the um, the rest of the world, namely the Western world. Later, Paul would be tragically executed by the Romans. His love for Jesus catches up with him. But Paul used his unique dual citizenship to further the kingdom of heaven of God, risking his life, even losing his life, to share the gospel with those who opposed it. Paul understood what it meant to be a citizen of heaven, and we have something to learn from our brother this is not some guy from history. He is our blood. He is our, he is our brother in the faith. He's given us so many good words from God, and we can learn from his example. We learn from Paul that there is absolutely nothing wrong with our earthly citizenship and identities. There's nothing wrong with being Jewish. There's nothing wrong with being Roman. There's nothing wrong with being Irish. There's nothing wrong with being American or Chinese or South African or Kenyan or Korean. It's all good. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be American. I look forward to becoming an American soon. But as Christians, we're called to something higher. We are called to consider these nationalities as secondary to our heavenly citizenship. And our earthly citizenship should serve our heavenly citizenship. 
And this starts with us honestly and humbly asking ourselves, where is our primary allegiance? Ask yourself, where is my primary citizenship? Can we say with full confidence that our primary allegiance is Jesus and eternal things? At this time, we're going to ask ourselves that question. We're going to leave space for us to honestly and humbly ask ourselves this question. Has my citizenship in heaven been overtaken by any other allegiance? Have we given into that sin? Has my citizenship in heaven been overtaken by any other allegiance? We're going to take a couple moments to reflect on this question in silence. And let me pray for us as we start this reflection time. God, thank you so much um, that, we can, that we live in a country and we live in a place where we're allowed to have these conversations, where we don't face death because of it. But Jesus, teach us what it means to be in this world and not of this world. Show us how to use our freedoms for your glory. Revealing us where things need to change and where our allegiances need corrected so we walk in our heavenly citizenship and bring positive change for your eternal kingdom. Let the way we pursue eternal things affect how we do earthly things. Jesus, thank you for what you've accomplished. May we walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.